Oh, sorry. And now for our sermon for today, we have um, Mr. Barnabas Grayson with What Manner of Love. Mr. Grayson. Okay, sneak up on me. Good afternoon, everyone. Yeah, Reggie told me that he had picked out some songs that applied to the, uh, the sermon this afternoon and also somewhat to the, the split sermon too, so this will be interesting, I think. In the book of First John, chapter 3, we read this. It says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. So when you see this word should, the word should, according to Strong's definitions, means to intend, and also indicates an obligation and a duty or a correctness to attend uh, to that. So in another way, as we read verse 1, it reads, What possible sort of affection has a father given us that we should be called the sons of God? So today we'll consider that statement of John and see how it is that we should be called sons of God. The, when you look at this word should, we see that it is also an expected response that we should give in that gift of life, that love that God has given to us. So what we read here, of course, is a personal letter from John. He was the, uh, uh, the Apostle John, who was the beloved disciple of Christ. But like the book of Hebrews, there's no verse in the Bible that tells who, who wrote this book. Which, but if you look at the second and third uh, epistle, you'll see where the writer refers to himself as the elder. That is the presbyterus. And there's also in 1 John 1 where it says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. That we recognize that only those who were close to Christ, like his disciples were, could boldly say that. So, even the style and content of the epistles of John here that we see is similar to the book of John, as in, if you remember in John chapter 1, where it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, in chapter 1 of First uh, John, beginning verse 1, again, That which was from the beginning... Which we have heard, the, the uh, Apostle John is saying, the beloved uh, John is saying, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word, or this logos of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. So the readers of this epistle are receiving a message from John that 
they saw this life, this eternal life, and they wanted to pass on the manner of love that Christ has bestowed, that God has bestowed upon the disciples. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, it says, declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us. So that, that's the reason, that to have fellowship with them. And truly, it says, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. When you think about fellowship, you can look around the congregation and know that we have fellowship. We have a togetherness. There's a family, an extended family. And one of the things that holds us together is the fact that we all believe in God and we believe in Jesus Christ. And we're not ashamed to say that when we're here. Because we know why we are here. And we know the reason we are here. So back in Matthew, you might remember also that Christ, uh, when he was... Uh, there on the cross or the stake and looking down, uh, he gave his mother to the care of John, the beloved disciple. It says there, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he said unto his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said, then said he to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, from that time, the disciple took her into his own home. Now, uh, there are you know, stories about how you know, after Jerusalem fell and after Mary uh, died, John went to reside in Ephesus. And so it is believed that these epistles were written to the surrounding churches in that area. John also, as we know, wrote the book of Revelation from the island of Patmos, about 70 miles southwest of Ephesus. Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province, but John was now in exile on Patmos because, you know, if he stayed in Ephesus, his life was in danger. So John, we know, lived a long time from the time he journeyed with Christ and the other disciples, saw all the miracles, saw all of the proofs that Christ was the Son of God. He grew in grace and he grew in, in knowledge of Jesus to understand the past, the present, and the future. And perhaps he even learned many things from Mary, Christ's mother. So John wrote this letter to the seven churches in that region, as Revelation 1 4 tells us, that it was written by John to the seven churches which are in Asia. But back to 1 John chapter 3, let's finish verse, uh, verse 1 here. It says, Therefore the world. That is, the cosmos, the inhabitants, know, knoweth us not, because it knew him not. So, in view of that passage, are not the followers of Jesus Christ, are not the believers in God, often looked down upon because of their faith and belief in God and in Jesus Christ, in the word that we have before us? It's because they do not know God. And it's because they do not want to know God. Because if they saw those things that they, uh, that they needed to believe in, they wouldn't want to do them. Because it requires a very deep commitment. But reading on in verse 2, it says, Beloved, now, now are we the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Christ we know, as mentioned earlier, 
came to live in the flesh as a human being and therefore as a son of God and to be a sacrifice. He came also to set an example of righteousness and obedience as a son of man to lead them to everlasting life and be like him. Verse 3, and every man that has this hope, uh, which is defined as a confident expectation, in him purifies, purifies himself even as he is pure. So you wonder, well, how do we purify our own self? Well, we're cognizant of the word of God, the knowledge that is provided to us in the word of God by renouncing sin, by mortifying the deeds of the body, the deeds of the flesh, so that our minds are like that of Christ by walking in the spirit of lights and not darkness. Verse 4, whosoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is a transgression of the law, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. In verse 6, whoever abides in him sinneth not, whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. So what does this mean? Are we not subject to weaknesses? Are we not subject to uh, committing a sin now and then? Is not, does this mean that salvation is forever? Back in 1 John uh, chapter 1, that which we have uh, seen, uh, 1 John 1, let's see. I might have given you the wrong. Let me just read what I have right here. 1 John 1, 3 through 8. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly it says our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. So we can take heart in knowing that we have fellowship with God, the Father, and Jesus Christ. And these things, in verse 4 he says, we write unto you that your joy may be full. So we, throughout this epistle we see John emphasizing Christ as the embodiment of eternal life and love. So he is our example of light. Here's our example of righteousness. In verse 5 there it says, This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If you've ever, just as something you might want to do as you listen to this, if you close your eyes like you're about to fall asleep, you know, you shut out everything that's around you. All the visible things that you're used to. The chairs, the ceiling, the lights, the fan. But then when you open your eyes, you suddenly see those things. Like walking in a dark spot or a place. Even if it's close to your home, there are some places that are dark. But if you have a flashlight, you turn it on and there you have the light. And this is the way, this is what God is. He, he's the light. He's light. And like a light shining in Darkness, we can see our way and avoid those obstacles that cause us to sin. However, in verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from sin. So the manner of love that the Christian has is to be free from that penalty of sin because, you know, no one is ever uh, sinless. We've sinned in the past and it is in our nature. And is there really anyone who is perfectly righteous? Verse 8 answers, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So part of that pure, uh, making, uh, purifying, uh, purifying ourselves is confessing our sin and just turning away from it. So when we become aware of any sinful act, any wrongdoing or any wrong deed, we know that as a sin, it is a transgression of the law. And when we see it in the light of God's word, we confess it and repent so that our walk with Jesus Christ uh, continues unbroken. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now 1 John chapter 2 Uh, starting verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you. Addressed as little children. That's how we're looked at. As little children. We don't know everything. There's a lot to learn, even as we age. There's, there's a lot to learn. My little children, these things write I unto you, that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So as we go along in life, we're bound to stumble. We're bound to fall. But it's then, you know, that we have to get on our knees, confess, and, uh, and repent of our sins. Because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And we know that the whole world all around us is full of wrongdoing, is full of evil, is full of a lot of sin. But hereby we do know that we know him. How do we know him? If we keep his commandments, those essential things uh, that uh, we pay attention to in our daily life. Verse 4, he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So, when you look at hope, we know that hope is a confident feeling about the future. But yet the way sometimes people express hope, it, sometimes you can detect a little bit of doubt uh, that might be tied to that word. And you can tell sometimes a little bit of uncertainty in the tone of voice when, when you might hear someone say, oh, I hope so, oh, I hope so, or I hope not, I hope not, as though it were something that may not happen. Instead, we're, have to, we're, we're, we're to have this confident expectation, this uh, certainty about hope, true hope coming to pass. But here the hope that we see is based on when Christ shall appear. And not if he shall appear, but when 
he shall appear, and then shall uh, be like him. So, it's, there's no if to this. It's when. That's, that's how hope is connected to the future, is when, not if. Because when you use if, you begin to doubt. So, as verse 2 read, uh, now are we the sons of God. Now are we the sons of God. So, what would be the reason for that to be true? You know, it's, uh, people might ask, well, are you a Christian? You know, and everybody knows what a Christian is. But imagine the looks you might get if, uh, if you said, well, I'm, I'm a son of God. So, there's a reason for that to be true. In Romans chapter 8, verse uh, 14, it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now, so if you're led by the Spirit, you are the Son of God. So the fact is, being led by the Spirit of God makes you a son now in this world. We know, of course, that the Holy Spirit is not, not a person, but the life-giving nature of God, of Jesus Christ. And we say, well, how is it given? How, how, is it, uh, how does it make you a son of God? Well, we know it's given upon repentance, and it's given upon baptism, and it's given upon the laying on of hands. In Acts 2.38, uh, when those on Pentecost heard the preaching of Peter, they began to realize that they had a guilty part in the crucifixion the execution and death of Jesus the Savior, and they cried out to the apostles after realizing that men and brothers, what shall we do? And you can almost hear that same, uh, that same uh, statement going through the crowd, men and brothers, what shall we do? So Peter said, repent, turn around, change, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is a gift. It's that manner of love that God has bestowed upon us. Now we also know that there were many Jews there. Jew and Jewish proselytes from uh, various uh, nations. Who were there to observe Pentecost. And for those who were reared and brought up in the Jewish religion, believing in one God and to hear that it meant believing in the name or the authority of Jesus Christ, that would mean quite a change. But Jesus, as we know, of course, was rejected by his own people. And there was a great desire among the religious leaders to, to kill him because he claimed God as his father. Let's go to John chapter 10, verse uh, 30. He said, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Then the Jews, what did they do when they heard that? They said, the Jews said, they took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, many good works have I showed you from the Father. For which of those works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him saying, for good work we stone you not, but for blasphemy and because that you, being a man, make yourself God. And so, they looked for ways to entrap Jesus. 
to accuse him of blasphemy and going against the tradition of the elders. And they talk many into giving false testimony and evidence to convict him, to go against him. In Matthew 26, in, it says that among these uh, people that they wanted to give false testimony, they found none. And many false witnesses came forward, yet found they none to uh, convict Christ of. And at the last, there came two false witnesses. And I'm reading over here in Matthew 26, verse 61. And one said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and he said unto them, said unto him, that is, said unto Christ, uh, answer you nothing? What is it which these witnesses against thee? Aren't you going to say something, Jesus? What about this charge? Verse 63. What manner of love is this? Jesus held his peace. And the high priest uh, answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that you tell us whether you be the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said unto him, you have said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes. He tore his clothes, made him so mad, so angry, he tore what he had on, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? You heard him. He said it. Behold, now you've heard this blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He's guilty of death. Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, shoved him around, spat at him. Others smote him with the palms of their hands. And you can almost hear the sickening sound if you've ever seen uh, you know, somebody uh, uh, fight. So the very people that he was uh, suffering for and about to die for were cruel to him. And there upon the stake he would say, nevertheless, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Like in the earlier message about forgiveness, what manner of love is that to, to forgive and to have love? Now we know that John the Baptist had prophesied of the Messiah to come. And when John saw Christ coming to the river, he knew. He said, behold. He said, behold the Lamb of God. So Jesus, who became the Son of Man as the Son of God, he came to show the way. He came to show us. He came to show you and me the way and manner of love that he has bestowed upon us. Now, John the Baptist, and you know that he's not, not in reference to him being a Baptist like, you know, some say or a Methodist, or, but he was the baptizer. He had that reputation as a baptizer there. He had already baptized those who came with fruits, meat for repentance, to symbolize the burial of the old self and become a new creature in obedience to God. But Christ, by his example coming, showed that John, what John was doing was right. And when he came from under the water, we see, after John had baptized him, uh, the Spirit of God descended upon him 
like a dove. A gentle dove, as we know. Now, it was time, it was some time after this that, uh, you know, uh, after this and the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Paul had gone to Ephesus. And while he was there, he went to, at first to teach in the synagogues, but the Jews resisted his teaching about Christ, and they refused to believe. Uh, I'm just going to, let's see, you might have that there. Acts, Acts 19, yeah. Acts 19. Uh, I want to skip down to verse 8 of Acts 19, uh, where it says, and he, this is Paul, he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, for three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when diverse were hardened and believed not, but spoke evil of that way, he departed from them. So, there were disciples there. And as Paul discovered, there was uh, something lacking, lacking even among these disciples. They knew that Christ, the Messiah, was coming, but they did not know he had come. They were baptized in John's baptism. In Acts 19, and here we go, verse 1. It came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus and finding certain disciples. And he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be a holy, any Holy Spirit. And he said unto them, Unto what then were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. Then said Paul, John verily baptized. He truly baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him, which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name or by the authority of, uh, on Jesus Christ. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came unto them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. Now, that was a supernatural event, just like it was on the day of Pentecost, and it was likely a witness to those who had come from other places, other languages, as tourists to Ephesus, because this is where Paul was then. 1 Corinthians 14, 22. Now, I know that, you know, some people believe in speaking in tongues, and there's... Uh, it's languages is what it's talking about. Uh, it's just a different subject. Uh, I, I remember one time where uh, I just thought, well, I wonder what it's all about. And uh, I had been reading some people who said, well, this is how you do it. This is how you start it. And uh, so I just started doing some gibberish. And I actually started <laughs> laughing at myself because, you know, anyone could gibber. And that's what I did. But I, I, so, you know, we can't judge, but we know these to be languages. We know these to be languages that people could speak and understand. Or else you'd have to have a translator there to, to hear, hear the tongues. But in 1 Corinthians 14, it was a supernatural thing, verse 22. It says to us, wherefore tongues are for a sign. Not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serves not for them that believe not, 
but for them which believe. So tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. So the teachings of Paul we see were supported by the miracle of tongues as well as healing and exorcism, which turned that pagan society, that pagan world, that occult world, upside down. And they were burning books and, and the books on the occult and magic was going up in flames and the silversmiths, they couldn't make any, have anybody buy these uh, little idols of silver that they were making because Ephesus was one of those places where uh, the temple of Diana was. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. And so the economy began to go up in flames too. So we see repentance, we see baptism, we see the laying on of hands as conditions for uh, receiving the Holy Spirit. Uh, back to verse 15 of Romans 8, <clears throat> about the manner of love that is bestowed upon us. For you have not received, it says, the bondage, of, uh, bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The NIV says, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. So when you receive the spirit of sonship, you have a relationship with the Father. You have a connection to the Father. It's just, it's, it, so there's no reason to fear. There's no reason to be afraid, because we have sonship. And by him we cry, using two words here, Abba, Father. In Mark chapter 14 and verse 35 at Gethsemane, this is verse 32. Uh, he said to his disciples, sit ye here while I pray, while I shall pray. Uh, but he took with him Peter, James, and John. And he began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And said to them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. This is how Christ felt at that time. Wait here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might uh, pass from him. And he said in his prayer, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Don't we all at one time or another have some sort of trial or test, an affliction that weakens us all over in mind and in body, making us afraid and sorrowful, and we would just like to be uh, out from under it. Take away this cup from me, Christ prayed. But we see the attitude of Christ, nevertheless, yet not what I will, but what you will. So we leave what we pray to the Father in his hands, and he will take care of it. And sometimes, uh, sometimes when, you, when you do say, not my will, but your will be done, and in time, it, uh, you see the hand of God working. Christ came <clears throat> as a son of man, and, and as such also the son of God, to be led by the Spirit in obedience as a son to a father. Once again, Romans 8 uh, verse 16. The Spirit is, uh, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. 
As I mentioned earlier, the Holy Spirit is uh, the character and nature of God that is put into our uh, minds and our hearts. And deep down, we know that we can sense that we have a family relationship as we respond to his word and do his will. But, and as I said, we are flesh, subject to ups and downs in life, all kinds of worries, all kinds of fears, all kinds of uncertainties and doubts, a lot of things that go against us in life. But we have to remember what Jesus said. Like in, verse, in, in Matthew where he said, Behold the fowls of the air. They don't sow. They don't plant. They don't reap. They don't store any uh, of their goods into their barns. Yet your heavenly father feeds them. And then he asks, Are you not much better than they? So why take you thought for clothes? What are you going to put on? Just consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Verse 17 of Romans 8. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So Christ has been there. He knows what it's like to suffer. Even his own people rejected him. And that was suffering too. So how hurt, hurtful was that? If you, to feel rejection. Maybe of your family or, or of a friend. But we know that Jesus said in this life. You shall have tribulation. Then he said be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You know, it's hard to look ahead when you're under some sort of trial or stress or tribulation or affliction. It's hard to look ahead. It's hard to look past our sufferings. But that glory is subject to our being sons or children of God now and of having faith and hope. Verse 19 for the earnest expectation of the creature waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. So creation is eager for that change to glory. There's always, even among people who are suffering, even among those who uh, do commit evil deeds and sin, you know, they hope for a better day in some way. So creation is eager for that change to glory, the manifestation of the sons of God. Verse 24, the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. The NIV says, for the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. Life we know can be frustrating. And all is vanity, said the preacher in Ecclesiastes. And that is what can move many to desire and have hope for, uh, for goodly change. Verse 21, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the uh, redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, 
But hope that is seen is not hope, for what a man seeth, why does he yet hope for? But if we hope for that, we see not, you know, we wait. We do it with patience. We wait for it till that hope comes. In, a com- in Matthew Henry's commentary, and I just want to read a couple of lines from that. He said, indeed, the whole creation seems to wait with earnest expectation for the period when the children of, of God shall be manifested in the glory prepared for them. The miseries of the human race through their own and each other's wickedness declare that the world is not always to continue as it is. Our having received the first fruits of the Spirit quickens our desires, encourages our hopes, and raises our expectations. We know sin has been and is the guilty cause of all the suffering that exists in the creation in the creations of God. So, it's obvious in our society today, people die in all kinds of ways. Some die violently. We see open hate. We see adulteries. We see broken homes. We see alcohol and drug abuse. We see name callings and all sorts of ungodly things. So, all of these things bring on the woes of earth. Now, uh, when we look at the pains that we see uh, people suffering in society, you know, how do we, how do we regard that? Uh, how do we pray for it? Do we always know what to pray for? Do we always know what to pray about? Not always. But in verse 26, there, continuing... Likewise, the Spirit, it says, also helps our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because it makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. You know, thy will be done. I... when you're like in a habit of prayer at a certain time or at a certain place, and you go to that place, but you don't know what to pray for sometimes. And so you're just there. But then you know that there is something deep inside that you want to communicate to God with. And that's where the Spirit knows what is groaning inside of you. He knows what you're wanting. He knows what you're appealing to him for. And it comes across in groanings that, you know, we may not put into words. It's, it's, it's there. He doesn't have to hear our voice because he knows our heart. He knows what's there. Because the Holy Spirit is a power. It's a dynamo. It's life. And we know, it says, verse 28, so no matter, you know, what problem or situation or, or adverse thing that goes against us. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God. I'm going to uh, skip Galatians uh, 4, Brian, and, and just going down to the uh, closing parts of this. We know that he has given us his love and forgiveness. But what does the spirit of adoption entail 
or involve, involve. There's three things I want to mention. You know, as a son of God, we have been given his spirit, and that's what connects us to him. So knowing that we have that spirit of, of adoption is the first thing that we should uh, know that entails this adoption, spirit of adoption. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, As it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. So God's Spirit gives us understanding about his plan of salvation. And we see it in the keeping of the holy days and the Sabbath, which you know a lot of the world does not understand or know about. For what man knoweth the things of, of man, except the spirit of man which is in him, even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. And we don't know everything. As we get older, we begin to learn a lot. And sometimes even when you're young, you learn a whole lot more than what some of us older ones uh, may know. Verse 14. But the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So, you know, the natural man, he just tends to go his own way. He, he walks in the ways of his flesh, his own fleshly desires, doing their own thing and not willing to quit doing them. But walking in the spirit is just foolishness to them. Verse 15. But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. Sons of God are spiritual people. We're spiritual people. We've been given things that pertain to God so that we are able to discern, discern between right and wrong in the light of God's word. And it's God who judges them. Verse 16, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. That's how we are now, the sons of God, by doing his will, walking in his spirit so that when the time comes, we will be like him. You know, John talked a lot about love. And verse 18 of 1 John 3, he says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. You know, by our action and by uh, the truthfulness of our action and our deeds. So he learned about love. He learned about all the virtues that, that come with it, like patience and kindness, hope. Hopes all things, endures all things, like what you read in 1 Corinthians 13. So to be a son of God is to walk in love. And verse 19, hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts uh, uh, before him. I'm going to drop on down to the third thing here. Uh, we need, uh, the second thing, I may not have mentioned it, but the second thing is to walk in confidence uh, before God. The third thing is to look to the, uh, to the Son of God, our Savior. In Hebrews uh, 2, <clears throat> Hebrews 2, uh, unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him? 
You've put all things in subjection under his feet. Uh, for in that he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus. Made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Crowned with glory and honor. That he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. On down to uh, verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, and that is the devil. And verse 17. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, to be made like unto us, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the pe people. That he might be, it says, a merciful and faithful high priest. The last scripture. In 1 John 4, uh, 8-14. Verse 8, it says, he that, loves, he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And this was manifested, love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, that is, you know, the atonement for our sins. Christ's sacrifice was unselfish. It was a, a manner of love that sometimes you wonder how in the world could someone give up their life for uh, sinners. And he paid the sinner's price and all that. Beloved, verse 11, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And we're to owe no man love. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves, to respect him and his property. And, you know, we don't want to steal from him. We don't want to cause him pain or uh, gossip about him or we want to be a help to our neighbor if we can. To love neighbor is to love God. In verse 12, no man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. When we do good for someone, you know, our spirit senses it. And that it was God's love that had motivated, that did it. Verse 13, hereby know we that we dwell in him. And he in us, because he has given us his spirit. Behold, what manner of love is this, that we should be called the sons of God. I'm going to wake up now. <laughs>